Well, thank you for that. Was that, uh, did you write that song? Nope. Wow. <clears throat> I wish I had. Well, you could have taken credit. I wouldn't have known. That was beautiful. Just such an incredible message. You know, you get a lot of theology from, from music, at least around here. Maybe not in some churches, but around here you certainly do. So, well, we are continuing our <clears throat> study through selected psalms, and we come to one today that I want to spend two Sundays on because it's, it's really uh, two different passages that kind of come together in one psalm. Uh, so, Psalm 51, and if you, if you want to turn there, you can. We're not going to spend most of our time today in Psalm 51. We'll get to it next week, but I do want to point out the title. You know, in the Hebrew text, the different uh, psalms often have titles. It tells us sometimes who wrote them or uh, what they were about, and this is the title in Hebrew in the, uh, at the beginning there of Psalm 51. It says, A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So I think most of us probably, if you grew up in church, remember the story of David and Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband Uriah. <clears throat> Certainly one of the low points in David's life. David, a man after God's own heart, and yet who committed what, by all accounts, is pretty serious uh, sins, probably two of the biggies, right? Murder and adultery. Um, and so I want to just sort of retell for uh, our, to bring it kind of fresh in our memories, the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah. Uh, if you want to follow along, we read about it in Second <clears throat> Samuel chapter 11, um, but it's really too much to just all read in one setting. And then we're going to turn to chapter 12, and that's where we'll spend our time uh, this morning. But if you remember, David was uh, out walking on the balcony one night. He sees Bathsheba across the way. He found her to be very beautiful. And so he sent uh, some messengers to go have her brought to him. And uh, then he laid with her and she became with child. And so then David began to try to cover up his sin of adultery. And he tried a number of things. If you recall, first he tried to send to have Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, who was out fighting a battle for King David, no less, and have him brought back in and have, take a little R&R &R and relaxation so that maybe he would not know that when Bathsheba, who became with child because of what David had done, that it was not his child. But that didn't work. So then he brought, uh, uh, he ended up having uh, Uriah, uh, killed. He gave orders to put Uriah on the front lines and knew that he would be uh, killed. And it's really an amazing story as you read it in the, the Old Testament narrative here. With It reads like a Hollywood script in many ways because um, you know the messenger comes to tell David that they had lost this battle and he's all worried that David's going to be upset and that he's going to be really uh, you know, bring retribution and scold his soldiers for such a poor battle plan. And so the messenger is sort of reciting how he's going to tell King David this. And, and he, they were big and they were tall. I'm paraphrasing here, but you get the idea. But of course, David, that was his plan all along. He wanted uh, people to die, specifically uh, Uriah. 
In any event, David then feels like he's sufficiently covered his tracks, but then he has this a confrontation with Nathan, the prophet, that is equally powerful and, and very uh, emotional, which is where we're going to spend our time today. So I want to kind of broadly speaking, spend this week and next week talking about this subject of sin. And you don't hear a lot about sin in our culture today, the American Western evangelical culture. They don't like to talk about it. But uh, sin is certainly a key uh, issue in Scripture. And, and we're going to come at it from two different angles. Ultimately, in our position, we are all sons of Adam and therefore sinners. The Bible says, Wherefore by one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death is passed upon all men. And so when sin entered the world, it created a race of sinners, and all human beings are born in sin, as we're going to see. David himself says that in, in this famous Psalm 51. So Psalm 51 is really David, after he comes to his senses, becomes convicted, realizes that he sinned against a holy God and against Bathsheba and against his own people and against uh, Uriah and Uriah's friends. David then writes this famous penitent psalm, and we learn a lot about the appropriate response to personal sin in our lives from reading Psalm 51. So we're going to talk about it from both a perspective of we're all sinners and what's the remedy for that sin, but also even as believers, sin is a terrible, terrible foe. Uh, you've heard me say before, my uh, pastor that I sat under through high school and college that I felt called to preach under his ministry used to say, sin will take you farther than you want to go cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin has negative consequences even in the life of a believer. It destroys life, lives. Um, it wreaks havoc. And so in this uh, part one, I guess we'll call this part one, the weight of sin, we want to deal with the after effects of David's sin with Bathsheba and then kind of take a look at some general principles of sin in the life of a believer. And then next week, I hope you'll come back because we'll take a look in earnest at Psalm 51 and look at some principles we can draw from David's response that help us deal with sin uh, in our own lives. But to introduce this topic of the weight of sin, I want to take you back to my uh, high school days. I was a big basketball fan. I'm a big sports fan, as you know. I'm, like all Christians, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. And um, I have more to say about that in a moment. By the way, I, I understand next week it's the Cowboys and the Broncos. They play each other. So um, be gracious if the Cowboys lose, okay? Just be gracious. I mean, I know I'm not gracious about the Cowboys, but anyway, do as I say, not as I do. Um, but anyway, I loved basketball. My, my friends and I, I played one year in high school, but I played a lot of pickup basketball, a lot of other city league type basketball, and man, we would spend hours playing. And we were big Rockets fans. I grew up in high school in Houston. And so uh, during my high school days, it was when the Rockets were pretty good and they went to the uh, championship. And I remember one uh, time we waited, my friends and I went and spent the night overnight at the box office because they were playing in the uh, uh, conference finals, and if they won that game, 
allegedly tickets were to go on sale immediately for the NBA World Championship, and we wanted to get tickets to be able to go to one of the home games uh, in, uh, in Houston. So we, we waited all, all night, us and several thousand other Houstonians, and uh, we had our little radios, and we were listening to the championship game. The Rockets were playing the Lakers, and, uh, and that was the game. I don't remember what game in the series it was, but the Rockets had won three. If they won that game, they would go to the championship series. And indeed, they won it when Ralph Sampson tipped in a bucket at the buzzer to win the game. But uh, so we were all excited. We were waiting. We were pretty far up in, in the line to get the, the, the limited number of tickets that would be on sale. But they ended up announcing, since it was the first time the Rockets had been to the World Championship in many years, that they were going to change the system and wait, put tickets on sale like two days later. So we all had to pack up our lawn chairs and sleeping bags and go home. But we were pretty disappointed. But it was in that same era that Pat Riley, who was the Lakers coach, uh, wrote a book. Uh, and his book was called The Winner Within, and he tells a story just a couple of years before that, the Lakers were a perennial champion, about the 1980 World Championship Los Angeles Lakers. They had won the NBA championship, they were recognized as the best team in the world, and they began the 80-81 season as the odds-on favorite to win back-to-back -back championships that year. But within weeks of the season opener, Magic Johnson, their all-star, their backbone of the team, tore a cartilage in his knee and he needed a three-month recuperation period. Well, uh, the team and the fans all rallied and the remaining players all played their hearts out. They really stepped up. They determined to make it through that period without Magic Johnson uh, and still maintain their position. They went on uh, a 70% winning streak, winning 70% of their games while Johnson was out. And the time came near toward the end of the season when Johnson was to rejoin the action. And as his return got closer, the publicity surrounding Magic Johnson increased. And so during timeouts at the games, the public address announcer would say something like, don't forget to mark your calendars for February 27th. Magic Johnson returns to the lineup for your world championship Los Angeles Lakers. Well, as those types of announcements and prelude to his return would take place, the other players would begin to look up and mumble under their breaths, and they'd say to each other, you know, we're winning now. What's so great about February 27th? They began to be resentful. And as the day approached, fewer and fewer things were written or said about the players who were leaving it all on the court with so much effort and continuing to win without Johnson. All the media attention was focused on the one player who hadn't done a thing the whole time. Well, finally, the 27th came, and as they clicked through the turnstiles, every one of the 17,500 fans that came into the Coliseum that day had a button, was given a button that read, The Magic is Back. At least 50 press photographers crowded onto the floor while the players were introduced, and normally only the starters are introduced at the beginning of a game, uh, and Magic Johnson was going to be on the bench to start the game, but he was nevertheless included in the introductions to get this rousing response uh, from the ca crowd. And indeed, when his name was mentioned, the arena rocked with a standing ovation. Flash bulbs went off like popcorn. Magic Johnson was like a returning god to the crowd that night. Well, meanwhile, the other players who had carried the team for three months were totally ignored, and they were seething with jealousy and resentment and anger and envy. They were so resentful that they barely won the game that night against a bottom-of-the-barrel team, and eventually the morale of their entire team collapsed. The players turned on each other. The coach was fired. 
They eventually lost their opening game, opening series of the playoffs, having one of the most disastrous falls and most rapid falls in NBA history. Here's what Riley said in his book about that experience. He said, quote, Because of greed, pettiness, and resentment, we executed one of the fastest falls from grace in NBA history. It was, quote, the disease of me. The disease of me. Well, the Bible tells a similar story of a man who is at the top of the world. Uh, but because of the disease of me, he fell to the depths of despair. His name was King David. He had it all. He was plucked from obscurity to lead the nation of Israel. But he, and he quickly became Israel's most powerful and accomplished king. And yet, in a moment of weakness, he threw it all away at great personal cost. So historically, we're dealing with a time period roughly 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C., so roughly 1,000 years before Christ. And we're going to pick up the story in this account. We saw what David did with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. But we're going to pick up the story in a moment with Nathan, the prophet, confronting David about his sin. And then we'll see how David responds, which we have recorded in the annals of inspired Scripture in Psalm 51. But to begin with, I want to start broad and talk about what is sin. We need to define our terms, especially in this day and age, because so much misinformation out there, even in so-called Christian churches who try to marginalize sin. So what do we mean by sin? Well, there are three biblical terms in the New Testament, anyway, that really describe theologically sin. In the first place, sin is missing God's mark. It's missing God's mark. We think of Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well-known passage. That word sinned is the verb hamartano. Uh, the noun form is hamartia. It means to miss the mark. Often, most usually translated sin. It's used 43 times in the New Testament in this verb form. It means to miss the mark. So if you think about uh, shooting an arrow at a... At a, at a uh, target and or a gun I had the privilege of going out and practicing my target shooting not long ago and I did pretty good wouldn't you say Fred I, they weren't in the bullseye but they were all together so I was I shot three shots and they were all within about a I don't know grapefruit size maybe yeah there you go so I feel like I was told anyway by the expert that if that had been an intruder or a you know axe murderer he would have I would have solved my problem so that that's all I really wanted wanted to do. But uh, if you picture that kind of a target, if the bullseye is God's righteousness, when you miss the mark, you fall short of that. And that's the most common term that we see in the New Testament. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. But another term refers to breaking God's law. Breaking God's law. And we see this also in the book of Romans when Paul says, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Breaking the law. This word is used only seven times in the New Testament. It's the word parabasis, and it means overstepping, transgression, disobedience. It's a noun. It's a compound word from para, meaning by or beside or near, and bino, meaning to depart or embark. Sometimes it's translated embark. The idea here is you've, you were near, but you departed and left. So it's, it's transgressing uh, the law, overstepping the boundary. Uh, and it's most often translated in the New Testament as a transgression. Uh, 
a transgression. But then the third uh, meaning of sin is despising God's standard. Despising God's standard, just in general. Not specifically referring to the Old Testament law, but God's standard of holiness and righteousness and all that God is, despising who He is. And this word is often translated lawless, and we see it in a passage that we've talked a lot about here over the last year in uh, my series entitled The uh, Spirit of the Antichrist. We frequently pointed out this passage from 2 Thessalonians 2 where Paul is describing the future Antichrist when he says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The word lawlessness there is anomia. Again, a compound word, ah, meaning no. Namas, law, so no law, utterly no law. It's used 15 times in the New Testament, almost always translated lawless or lawlessness. So we see missing the mark, transgressing the law or breaking God's law, and despising God's standard. And all of this summed up, it, all of this is summed up in the theological principle of the depravity of man. It's the very condition into which every human being is born. We were created in the image of God, but that image of God in man became tarnished the moment we sinned, and we all sinned in Adam. We don't become a sinner when we sin. We become a sinner when we're conceived in our mother's womb. We're born in sin, and then we do what sinners do naturally. And I want to put up my definition of depravity, and I know it's a bit wordy and I'm breaking my normal rules about putting a lot of text on the screen, but I want to camp out here for just a moment and make sure we understand what we mean by the depravity of man. Because some people try to define depravity in the sense of mankind has no ability to believe the gospel, that you cannot avail yourselves of the one and only remedy that God has provided for our own depravity by believing the gospel. I don't believe that. I think the Bible does not teach that at all. So I want to give you a good biblical definition of depravity. So first, let's talk about what it does not mean. Total depravity does not mean that everyone is as sinful in his actions as he could possibly be. So depravity sounds like a, a bad condition, right? And, you know, when you, when you think of depravity, you think of the worst of the worst, the serial killers, the, the muggers who stab old ladies on the streets of New York, or those kinds of things. You think of the worst of the worst. But total depravity in Scripture does not mean that everyone is as sinful as he could possibly be. Nor does it mean that everyone will indulge in every form of sin. Nor does it mean that a person cannot actually perform morally righteous acts. See, unbelievers can do things that are right in the sense of a moral code, right? But it doesn't mean they're, they're not still totally depraved and not, haven't, have not dealt with the sin problem. What does total depravity mean? Well, it means that every person is born under the penalty and condemnation of sin. Namely, eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. Every one of us is born lost and on the road to hell. Ephesians 2 1 says, We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. David, in the psalm that we're going to look at in this, this week and next week, Psalm 51, makes it very clear. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, the Hebrew word for sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. So we're all born sinners. And apart from receiving the free gift of eternal life paid for by the blood of Christ, as we've just been singing about, we will die in that depraved condition. 
It's only through the shed blood of Christ that we have any hope of changing our position from being a son of wrath, a son of Adam, into a son of the second Adam, the one who defeated death, hell, and the grave, Christ Himself. And Romans 5 talks about that. So before we go on, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, then you're still under the penalty and the condemnation of sin. And I would encourage you, I would implore you, don't leave this place today without in simple childlike faith trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can save you. It's the only way you can receive forgiveness of sin and be declared righteous, have Christ's righteousness given to you, imputed to you. You can't be good enough. You can't self-reform. You can't uh, do it by some religion or the seven sacraments or walking an aisle or being baptized or raising a hand or signing a card or joining a church. It's all about personal faith. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. 160 times. Very clear. So you have to believe the good news that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead and He's the only one who can save you. But if you're here today and you're already saved, then the rest of this opening message in this two-part series is really for us. Because the reality is, even after by faith we've received eternal life and been positionally declared righteous, so we're no longer under the condemnation and penalty of sin, the reality is we still sin, don't we? That's because when you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence. You're born again, literally born from above, Jesus said in John 3. But the, the new man, the new nature, the Holy Spirit does not eradicate that old nature. If it did, we'd all be perfect, right? If all we had was the new man, the Holy Spirit is God. He can only do what's righteous. And if that's all we had within us, we would all be perfectly righteous. But uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you here believe the Lord Jesus Christ and are a Christian? You're confident you're a Christian. Raise your hand. Okay, now how many of you that are Christians still sin? Oh, good, yeah, wow. That's good. Usually I get some people that are like, I don't know if I want to admit it. But no, everybody's pretty honest here. Um, of course we do, right? So how do you deal with sin in the life of a believer? What's the issue? Well, what I want to do as we go back to second or to first second Samuel chapter 12 is is the rest of our time just take a look at the life cycle of sin as we review Nathan's confrontation with David and compare that with the teaching of scripture as a whole on the subject of sin i see four broadly speaking steps or stages you might say in the life cycle of sin because sin, as Paul tells us very plainly in Romans, is a very formidable foe. It's a reality. That old man is always rearing his ugly head. And the first st step or stage in the life cycle of sin is that sin wills. Sin wills. Before we get to the theology of that and why I am putting it that way and what the Bible says, let's go back to the story of uh, David and Nathan. So let me read this, it's just a few verses, and then we'll pick it up in verse 8. Then the Lord said to Nathan, sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, and he's going to use an illustration to get David's attention. How many times has the Holy Spirit used illustrations to get people's attention? And here's he's going to do it with, with David. 
So Nathan says to David, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger, hearing this illustration, this story, David's anger was greatly aroused. Remember, David's the king against this man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then here's where the story reaches a crescendo in verse 7. Then, and it's separated out, by the way, in the Hebrew text as a new paragraph. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. And on the screen you see, I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. I gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if that had, not, if that had been too little, I also would have given you much, much more. In other words, David had absolutely no reason to lust after Bathsheba. He had it all. There was no logical reason for David to do what he did. So why did he do it? Because sin wills. It is a force within us beckoning us toward evil. Lance Morrow, in a Time Magazine article entitled simply Evil, one word, said this, quote, Evil is a word we use when we come to the limit of human comprehension. But sometimes we suspect that it is the core of our true selves. I don't know anything about Lance Moore. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but I know theologically he has a point. We go to Romans chapter 7 and we see this point borne out. There is an evil bent within all of us, and it's called sin. Paul said, as a believer, he's speaking here, For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Skipping to verse 17, But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. It would be different, Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, if there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But he goes on, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And that's true of believers too. Because if we cater to the flesh, as we shall see, we are capable of committing the worst kinds of sin. A little girl was once disciplined by her mother for kicking her little brother in the shins and then pulling his hair. Sally, said the mother, why did you let the devil make you kick your brother and pull his hair? The little girl said to her mother, well, the devil made me kick him, but pulling his hair was my own idea. <laughs> we all have this will within us that is beckoning us to sin. Listen to what we read in verse 19 of Romans 7. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. 
But the evil that I will not to do, that I end up practicing. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So who's doing the willing? Who's beckoning? Sin. Sin wills. Later on, Paul describes it in Galatians. Later on, at least canonically, he actually wrote Galatians before he wrote Romans. And Galatians has often been called many Romans, similar truths about justification and sanctification in both books. But he describes this struggle that Paul was just talking about in his own personal life in theological terms. He says, The flesh, the old man, lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. There it is. See, we, we have to walk in the spirit and yield to the spirit, not yield to the, own, the, the old man. Now, I've often charted this out. I, I can't remember if over the last year and a half I've shown this in here before. It wouldn't surprise me if I did it on a Wednesday night. But this is the way we chart out Galatians 5.17 and this battle within the life of a believer over struggling with sin. So I'm not the greatest artist, but I think you'll get the idea here. On the left, we're going to let this represent the unbeliever and this the believer. So we're going to show both the pre-conversion and then the post-conversion comparison here. So when we're talking about unbelievers and believers, let's, let's start there. And just to make sure that you understand the, the, the dichotomy here of these two, let me just make it very clear for you. This is the believer and this is the unbeliever. So, I know, yeah, I deserve it. Um, by the way, next week they play each other and I'm sure I'm going to have to eat a lot of crow if somehow... The Cowboys lose, which is entirely possible. My son, my oldest son, sent me this uh, during the Sunday school hour, and I thought it was quite appropriate, so I would read it for you, just to show you that we can be tough on our own, uh, uh, fan, uh, as Cowboys fans, tough on our own team, too. So he says, a Cowboys fan, a Redskins fan, and by the way, they'll always be the Redskins to me. I don't know what they call them now, but that's who I'm talking about. A Cowboys fan, a Redskins fan, and an Eagles fan, and a Giants fan. All four are climbing a mountain and arguing about who loves their team the most. At the top of the mountain, the Redskin fan insists that he's the most loyal. And he shouts, this is for Washington, and jumps off the mountain. The Giants fan, not to be outdone, insists that he loves his team the most. He says, this is for New York. He jumps off the mountain. Well, not to be outdone, the Cowboys fan professes his love for his team. This is for Dallas, he yells and pushes the Eagles fan off the mountain. So, there you go. Alright, so what is this struggle that we all feel inside of us as we labor each day to walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh, knowing that the flesh and the Spirit are warring with each other? Well, in the life of a believer, we know is characterized by love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness. The life of the unbeliever is sold under sin and characterized by things like, as Paul goes on to say in Galatians 5, selfishness, enviousness, contentious, jealousy, anger, hatefulness. And this is just a general summary. We could list a lot of other things. Certainly there are more uh, listed there in the fruit of the Spirit and fruit of the flesh. But you get the idea. Now, once you become a believer, then you, you still have this old man at work within you. 
The difference between a believer and an unbeliever is that the believer now has the Spirit dwelling within him and has the capacity to produce true righteousness. Remember, the righteousness that an unbeliever commits, remember when I talked about the total depravity and how you know, total depravity and unbeliever can still do morally righteous things? The Bible tells us those morally righteous things are like filthy rags to a holy God because they're born out of the old man. They're born out of sin. But once we have the Holy Spirit, once we're saved by grace through faith, then we have the capacity in the Spirit to do things that are truly positionally righteous, reflecting of God's holiness and righteousness. And what Paul is saying here in Galatians 5.17 is that these two things are at war with each other. Satan uh, wants to get us to sin, just like he tried to get Jesus to sin in uh, the wilderness. And so once you get saved, the Bible calls these old tendencies the flesh and these new tendencies the spirit. And the goal is to, or sometimes they're called, by the way, the old man and the new man. Paul uses that terminology in Colossians and in Ephesians. But the idea is, who would you rather imitate? Uh, the, the task of the believer, since sin wills to have us, is to recognize our identity in Christ. And we're going to talk about this more next week when we look at Psalm 51. And, and mimic the new man. Walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh, because the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So sin wills. The second step in the life cycle is that sin thrills. Sin thrills. If we go back to what we read a moment ago in 2 Samuel chapter 11, or, or we read chapter 12, but in the story that I summarized in chapter 11, remember, David saw that the woman was very beautiful to behold. There was something enticing, something alluring to David. Notice what it says. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked out on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Sin thrills. But as the writer of Hebrews tells us in that great hall of faith chapter speaking about Moses... Sin has a passing pleasure for a moment. It's appealing at first, but it's really like fool's gold. It always leads to great problems and consequences. Sin thrills. But as Job reminded us, this is actually Zophar, one of his three friends, talking. He says, but, but not everything their friend said was wrong even though their overall principle and argument was wrong, they had some truisms, and one of them was this, the triumphing of the wicked is short. The triumphing of the wicked is short. Sin thrills, but it is a, a, a very brief enticement that once you've taken the bait, really leads to very serious consequences. And that's what we see happening in David's life. So sin wills, sin thrills, and then sin chills. The pleasure of sin soon gives way to a, a coldness and an emptiness that envelops the soul and makes us wish that we hadn't taken the bait. And we sort of saw that as we read the, the confrontation between Nathan and David when David connected the dots and realized, I have sinned. Specifically, I have sinned against the Lord. It was a coldness. How do we know this? Well, if we look at Psalm 51, David's response to this 
confrontation with Nathan. The Bible tells us that's what Psalm 51 was all about. And we're going to look at this more next week. But he said in his prayer, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, once he had taken the bait, then his, his body, just he just felt cold all over. Not physically necessarily, but emotionally and spiritually. He felt distant from the warmth and intimacy of the fellowship with the Father. Have you ever been there? Of course we have. As believers, when we find ourselves catering to the flesh, getting away from the Lord, staying out of His Word, not fellowshipping with other believers, drifting away from the Lord, now nothing can ever change our identity in Christ. That's Once you're part of the family of God, that's settled forever. Jesus says, I give you eternal life, you shall never perish, right? You've passed from death to life, He said, and you shall never come under judgment. But there's a fellowship there. Jesus calls it abiding. Remember he told the 11 disciples in the upper room the night he was betrayed that you need to abide in me, stay close to me is what he was saying. I'm about to leave and you need to walk close to me in the Spirit is what he was basically saying. He talked about the, the comforter that was going to come and abide with them forever. And then John, one of the disciples that was right there when Jesus was saying that, later writes in 1 John to all believers about how we can have fellowship with the Lord. Not how to get saved. You only get saved one way, by faith alone and Christ alone. But as a believer, if you're catering to the flesh, then there's a broken fellowship there. Not a broken relationship. Our relationship is secure. We're a child of God. But a broken fellowship. And it's a, it's a coldness. It's a coldness that makes us feel distant from the Lord. And David felt that. And that's why he prayed, Restore to me the joy of salvation when he when he finally recognized the chilling effects of sin. So sin wills, sin thrills to make it enticing, and then sin chills. But finally, let's not forget, sin kills. Sin kills. The ultimate goal of sin is to kill. Jesus himself said Satan comes to kill steal, and destroy. In John 8, Jesus said Satan is a murderer from the beginning. He brought death into the world. He's a killer. Satan basically has two simple MOs. He wants to lie and he wants to murder. That's what he does. He's a killer. And sin kills. Now we see this sort of symbolically played out, uh, not directly in David's life, but in the story. Because as you recall, at the end of this confrontation with Nathan, we read, However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. So there are consequences to sin is the idea in this historical narrative. But the theology of sin leading to death we get elsewhere. As we look to the New Testament, we see very plainly the wages of sin is death. So... Sin in the garden led to the spiritual death of all mankind and the human race. That's the depravity of man. And if left unremedied, then we will all spend we would spend eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. So that penalty has been paid for, that wage has been paid, but it's not forced upon us. We have to receive it like any gift. A gift has to be freely offered and freely received. A gift forced upon someone is no gift at all. So the offer is universally made. Whosoever will, let him come drink of the water of life freely, Revelation 22. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. And he is drawing all men to himself. 
but we have to receive the gift. So sin at its theological level kills in the sense of spiritual separation from God. Remember, death just means separation. And uh, we have a chart in our chart book that talks about the six kinds of death in Scripture. But spiritually speaking, it's separating us from a holy God. But notice that from a practical perspective, when we deal with sin in the life of a believer, now we're dealing not with justification, being declared positionally righteous with God, but practical righteousness, living out the new life in Christ and growing, conforming to the image of Christ over the span of our lifetime on earth. It's called sanctification, what the Bible calls progressive sanctification. And so when it comes to that topic, the practical consequences of sin lead to physical death. Notice James says, sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Paul talks about this as well in Romans 8. After he describes the ongoing struggle, as sin was willing to have him, and the things that he knew he should do, sometimes he doesn't do them, and the things that he knew he shouldn't do, guess what? Sometimes he does them. He climaxes chapter 7 with, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And that's a, a powerful illustration, but it's, it's also an apt one because once we leave this body and this mortal puts on immortality, this corruptible puts on incorruption, we won't have to deal with sin anymore. No sin in heaven, no sin in the kingdom someday, right? But as long as we're confined to this sin-stricken world and these sin-stricken bodies, by the way, it's because of the curse of sin that our bodies deteriorate, right? We're not getting better and better. We're getting worse and worse, right? And as I've said before, if you want, to pr want proof of that point, when you get home today, just uh, find a, a picture. You probably have one on a, a counter somewhere or hanging on a wall of your wedding day. And then pull out your wallet and compare that picture to your driver's license photo today. You'll see we're not getting better and better. We're getting worse and worse. Um, and so he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? And the, the word picture there, and I know you know this, I've talked about it before, but in, in the Roman Empire, one of their methods of capital punishment was to take the, a cadaver, a dead body, and strap it to the backs of a condemned uh, capital offender. And they would have to walk around that way until the disease and decay of that dead body transferred to them and they died a cruel, difficult death. Not as cruel as crucifixion, but a cruel death nonetheless. And Paul is saying that as a believer, when we go back into the closet and put on the clothes of that old man, as a believer, when we walk in the flesh and allow sin's will to, to control us, it's like we've put on this dead body. And what's the answer? The answer is to reckon ourselves dead to sin, Romans 6, 11, and alive to Christ, to recognize who we are in Christ. And so here Paul says, do you not know that to whom you present your body slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? See, sin is an equal opportunity killer. Sin doesn't care whether you're a believer or not. If you fool around long enough with sin, as I said at the outset today, it'll take you further than you want to go. Sin kills. If you're a believer and you die because of some sinful action you did, you'll go to heaven when you die because of who you are in Christ, thankfully. If you're an unbeliever and you sin, you'll die and go to hell because you never received the free gift of eternal life. But sin really doesn't care. Sin's consequences are universal. A believer who decides to do cocaine is no less inclined toward an overdose than an unbeliever. Right? 
sin is a universal killer. He goes on to say, uh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. First John reminds us there is sin leads, leading to death. Not a sin, but sin. Uh, and if you take a quick journey through the book of Proverbs, you'll find this principle in the wisdom literature of Proverbs uh, taught again and again, reminding us of the ultimate consequences of sin. For example, in chapter 10, verse 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Or chapter 11, verse 19, as righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. That's where sin leads, right? It leads to death. Or chapter 19, verse 16, He who keeps the commandments keeps his soul. Soul there in Hebrew is nephesh, it just means life. But he who is careless of his ways will die. Or Proverbs 21, 16, A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. Now these are principles, and we live in an inequitable, unfair world, and sometimes dirty, rotten, filthy sinners live to a ripe old age. Doesn't seem fair, does it? And sometimes innocent people die young. But that doesn't change the principle. You don't want to bank on being the exception. So sin is a serious foe, and sin kills. That's what sin does. And so, again, we're going to get next week into the remedy a little bit more as we kind of break down what David said as he really has that chilling reality and recognizes what he's done uh, in Psalm 51. But we need to remember that God's commandments are not burdensome. The reason God gave us the commandments, going all the way back to the garden in Adam and Eve, when He said, you can have anything you want in the garden, but don't eat from that one tree. Because in the day you eat of it, you'll die. God wasn't, you know, trying to dangle some carrot out in front of them as if he enjoyed like a masochistic being seeing people suffer. He loved his highest pinnacle of creation. He, it wasn't until after Eve was created that God looked and saw everything was very, very good. Look at this. In my own image I created them. Male and female I created them. And he loved us so much that he wanted to prevent us from suffering the dangers of sin. And of course, He created us. Part of being in the image of God is having free will. If we were just a bunch of robots who had no choices, it wouldn't have made any sense. So part of free will was we could choose to rebel against God and, do, and sin. So God protected us. He said, hey, watch out. That's danger. Don't go near it. Don't eat it specifically. Because in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Of course, we know the story. We ate of it and we died. And then God still went the extraordinary step as a loving, gracious, merciful God to provide a remedy for our own predicament that we got ourselves into in the person and work of His eternal Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But God's commandments were not burdensome. They're for our own good. And as we struggle in this flesh-spirit battle, we need to remember that the Spirit's beckoning is for our own good. It's not just like God is some kind of a cosmic killjoy. God knows what's best, just like a parent does. You know, kids get mad when the parents say, you can't do this, you can't do that, don't do that. And they go, oh, you're just trying to make life no fun. No, it's because we know, you know, two-year-old, if you touch that hot stove, it's going to burn your fingers. It may look enticing, it may look thrilling, but don't do it, it will hurt. And that's the way our loving God is for us. So we need to keep His commandments not legalistically, 
but because we know God loves us. So there you have it, the life cycle of sin. Sin wills, sin thrills, sin chills, and ultimately, if left unchecked, sin kills. So what's the takeaway? Well, the takeaway is stop fooling around with sin. It's not a game. It's not a game at all. There are consequences of sin. And next week, we're going to come back and do part two of Psalm 51 and take a closer look at some of the principles that I think will help us as we seek to walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh. And we'll look specifically at Psalm 51. And I've already begun developing a list of several uh, ways based on David's response in Psalm 51 that will help us, principles that will help us uh, overcome sin in, in the life of a believer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together today. Thank you for the sweet spirit in this place today and just the, the nourishment of your word. I pray that your spirit would just apply it to our lives in unique ways in each individual life as we leave here today, that we would be reminded that we serve a good God, that you want only what's best for us, and that in humble obedience we would seek to follow after the spirit and not after the flesh. And Father, again, we pray if there's one within the sound of my voice, either uh, live streaming over the internet or here in this room that doesn't uh, know you through your Son and our Savior Jesus Christ. I pray that today would be the day of salvation and that today they would place their faith in you as the only one who can forgive sin and give the gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's close out with just one, one verse and chorus of Jesus.